Radiology has always been seen as kind of a lifestyle specialty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. We are excited to be joined by Dr. Brian Hartley. Brian is the co-founder and CEO of Palmera and an attending in cardiothoracic and abdominal imaging at Vanderbilt. Dr. Hartley is fellowship trained interventional radiologist with extensive experience with diagnostic radiology and image guided procedures. Dr. Hartley completed his medical education, residency and fellowship at Vanderbilt University. And he also spent time at Stanford in their Biodesign Innovation Fellowship, which we'll get into a little bit today. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. Good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how did you get into radiology? Yeah, so I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, went to college at University of Georgia, which I'm very proud of their football season last year. And this year it looks pretty good so far. Um, and no, always wanted to get back to Tennessee and Vanderbilt was an amazing uh, medical school and rated very well. So ended up going there uh, for med school and uh, loved it. Loved Nashville. I think Nashville's just exploding and it brings a lot of people there. How did I specifically get into radiology? Uh, that would be, uh, did a rotation during my fourth year of med school early on and just fit well with the group. I think it was just a, a good group of people. I got along with them really well, kind of saw life the same way and the practice of medicine and loved imaging and, and what it can do for patients. You're almost the doctor's doctor. You know, we, we're, we're consultants for physicians for the most part. And so I love the idea of being able to speak the, the language of almost every specialty, you know, whether you're talking to a surgeon you know, a general surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, a neurosurgeon, a urologist, you can speak with all of them. So yeah, that's what got me interested. And then found interventional radiology, which is even, you know, so cool. That's image guided procedures and, you know, fell in love with just these groups of people that were so good at getting hard, hard procedures done in a very minimally invasive and low complication way. So it sucked me in and, um, ended up doing radiology residency at Vanderbilt and then stayed on to do IR fellowship and really, yeah, haven't looked back. Awesome. Well, at the time when you were going into interventional at the time, mm -hmm. the residencies were still combined and then you did IR as a fellowship that's changed since, right? For, yeah. For going into IR. Yeah. 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 So there's always been this push pull between uh, interventional radiology and diagnostic radiology. They are linked, obviously, because traditionally you go through the same residency and then interventional radiologists would do an extra one-year fellowship at the end. That's the traditional path. And it's interesting because interventional radiology is image-guided procedures. So you need to have the foundation of diagnostic radiology to do IR. But as you get further out in your practice and, and what you notice is that IRs really are a different beast. You know, they're basically endoscopy suites or, or in, uh, excuse me, uh, cath labs for, uh, you know, all day long doing procedures. And that's so different from their colleagues. But often, I mean, traditionally, they're in the same group. 
So you have a mix of diagnostic radiologists, then you'll have a few interventional radiologists. So, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting push and pull between the two specialties. And I think IR has been trying to differentiate itself a little bit from diagnostic radiology because they do add a lot of value on the procedure side, but they haven't been seen as, as clinical as they really want to be seeing patients doing clinic the same way as a, as any proceduralist or surgeon. They've kind of just been seen as this arm of physicians who will, you put in an order for a procedure and then they'll just go and do it. And that's not the perception IRs want to have. You know, they want to be kind of a standalone clinical based, see your patients, follow up on your patients type of specialty. And I think that's why it's kind of moved to what it is now, which is you apply for international radiology out of, out of medical school and you still get double certified in diagnostic and interventional radiology, which is nice because you want to keep your, your diagnostic skills, but they're getting the residents involved in clinical procedures and clinical rotations early on. So they'll do a surgery intern year, whereas before you could kind of choose what kind of intern year you wanted to do. And then they'll get you into the IR suite earlier and earlier. And then as you progress to the end, you're pretty much doing all IR. So, I mean, these, these new IR residents are going to be extremely proficient clinically, I think. Hmm. They're moving in the direction that I think the leaders in IR want them to go in. Really interesting. How do the surgeons feel about this? Because you're you're part of a big hospital system. You talk about trying to get closer to patients. Does that feel mm -hmm. like, hey, you're encroaching on on our turf here? Or are they supportive? What are some of the battlegrounds like? No, yeah, it's a good question. I don't think the surgeons, we're, we're, you know, there may be certain specialties that uh, traditionally have overlapped with interventional radiology, including vascular surgery cardiology, sometimes they overlap, they're all doing endovascular procedures. But I think at the end of the day, there's plenty of work to go around. And, and interventional radiologists have, have been able to differentiate themselves at every turn, because they just have such a broad skill set. I think what you're seeing again, is that is a little bit of additional separation between diagnostic radiology and interventional radiology. That's probably more where, where this is going. Um, but as far as the interventional radiologists, again, the identity of that is so rooted in, in procedures and patient care. They want these students and residents and fellows to be more clinically oriented so that they can see the patient in clinic. They know what medications to write if they need to follow up. They know, mm -hmm. they know the patient. They know the patient. And that's something that, you know, it's the same model that a surgeon would use. They evaluate the patient in clinic. They decide whether they're going to do surgery on them. And then once they do the surgery, they follow them up in clinic to make sure they're doing okay. That's the model that I think interventional radiology has aspired to. And really, a lot of them are doing that. A lot of interventional radiologists are doing that. But you got to have the initial training and skill set. And I think some of the leaders in IR probably thought this one-year fellowship was not enough to get the clinical training you need. Right, right. What's the interest level like? One thing that was surprising was this past year diagnostic radiology residency spots were the most popular they've been in years there had been a real mm -hmm. downward trend yep. places weren't filling their slots because mm -hmm. people were afraid of ai among other concerns and uh i think covid made diagnostic radiology <laughs> a more desirable profession for a number of reasons that, that you could speculate on but I think work from home was a big one. 
but I don't know as much about interventional radiologists. Is it still really popular? How are folks uh, finding it? Yeah, I think they're still evaluating. I think they're still feeling that out. I mean, it's only been a few years, I guess, since they've been doing this and COVID threw everybody. I think at the beginning, IR became one of the most popular and competitive specialties out there. I think the first year, it was one of the most competitive specialties. I think you're probably going to see it kind of revert back to a mean as it kind of settles back to an equilibrium. For diagnostic, it always, I mean, a lot of specialties go in waves, okay? And, and for a while, diagnostic radiology was not that popular, whether it was because people thought AI is going to do your job as a radiologist. It's hard to say. I do know that, you know, they're talk about declining reimbursements for special certain specialties, including radiology. Uh, and for a while, maybe that was the, the fear, declining reimbursements. It's getting harder and harder. Our volumes just keep going up and up and up and up. So there's a lot of pressure on radiologists these days. But yeah, everything goes in cycles. I think maybe we thought it was AI and people were afraid that radiologists were going to be replaced. But now I think what you're seeing is uh, a shortage of radiologists because the volume keeps going up and residency spots don't really expand. You're seeing a shortage of diagnostic radiologists, and that is going to drive generally pay is going to start increasing when you have that supply demand issue. Mm -hmm. And once pay starts increasing and, you know, also you can work from home in a lot of situations that's attractive to med students. You know, radiology has always been seen as kind of a lifestyle specialty. I will tell you, it is an incredibly hard specialty. <laughs> um, people think if you're sitting in a chair, you're, you know, it must not be that bad, but you know, I would, I would argue, would you like to be taking the MCATs or the SATs every day? Because that's what it feels like when you're, when you're, doing, that's a good, when you're, when you're doing radiology. I think radiology. that's a good analogy. I like that a lot. Every day is like a standardized test. It is. Yep. There's no, there's no answer key. No, no, you just go and, you know, you're always feeling pressure to, to keep going. Of course, you love it. You know, everything's a puzzle, but it doesn't mean it's not a grind. Uh, For sure. So it sounds like you saw what was ahead and you said, okay, that's really interesting, but there might be some more things that I can do with my medical mm -hmm. experience, my clinical experience. And you went on a different path towards mm -hmm. the Stanford Biodesign Innovation fellowship. What is that? How'd you hear about it? What drew you to it? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I learned about that. Actually, I think I knew about it towards the end of medical school, but it was always this just kind of ethereal, you know, thing, a program out there that people talked about as being incredible to learn medical devices. And I think during med school and, and residency, I've always been curious on how devices are designed. Who, who are the people behind the curtain? who's coming up with this cool new device that's changing the way physicians practice and providing value to patients. So I knew there were physicians involved, but there's just, I didn't really know that many of them. So uh, I started working with some engineers at, at Vanderbilt, trying to just learn about medical device design. And there were some translational labs, Bob Webster's lab at, at Vanderbilt, who I started working with on some robotics projects and always had Stanford Biodesign in the back of the mind as something that I think I would, would enjoy. And then as I progressed along during residency, I started getting more serious about it, filing patents uh, with the group I was working on, working on specific projects, and just loved using that side of my brain that was more design-oriented, problem-oriented, creative, 
and finding something that nobody else had found, finding some insight. And so uh, decided to apply to biodesign and did that tour after my fourth year of residency. No, uh, yeah, after my fourth year of residency during uh, my fellowship year. Didn't get in the first year. So that was a really tough application process and, and interview process. Two days of interviews. You could do a whole podcast on how they interview. We were interviewed by a psychologist. It was full two days of interviews, brain games. They put us in a room with some of the most prominent medical device designers on the planet. And it would be you wow. and three of three of them, uh, including like Hanson Gifford, who founded the Foundry, which has put out 12, 13 companies, many of them acquired for over a billion dollars. <laughs> he sits there and they go, okay, you've got three minutes. I want you to tell me all the different ways you would solve spinal stenosis, you know, and they, <laughs> you know, they would just say, go, you know, uh, you've got degenerative disc disease. You've got a bulging disc. What are all the different ways you would try to solve this? And they would time you and give you, you know, three or four minutes to just sit on the whiteboard and just draw, 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 draw and talk, which was insane. Did you, did you come up with a good solution? I thought I did. I was talking about using like springs and like shock absorbers and all sorts of <laughs> lasers. Probably a word laser came out. You're just making stuff up. You know, the way you do it is you think of the different buckets of solutions you can use. You can say chemical, mechanical, physiological. You have categories and then you try to come up with a solution within each one of those. Electrical, right? Electrical. Well, how can I use electricity to cure your back pain? but you're just going crazy on it and you're just nervous as all get out. And then another interviewer is a psychologist. He's a, a marriage counselor and I get in there and incredible guy. He get in there and he goes, hands me a piece of paper, hands me a pen. And he says, I want you to draw your life story. <laughs> I go, what? I drew the state of Tennessee in a needle as a radiologist and <laughs> interventional rail. I was like, Oh God, I've just failed. You know, like, I, can't, I can't, I can't even draw. <laughs> uh, and so I was just like, this is insane. I feel like, I, you know, being interviewed by Robin Williams on Goodwill Hunting. And <laughs> in the fellows that were already fellows, there's 12 of them each year. They're evaluating you all day long. So you're, you come out of your interview, you go into another interview. It's like, you know, you've got what's behind this door. Who's it going to be interviewing you? And in between, you're doing projects with your other candidates. There's 24 of us there. And the fellows are watching. So we had to build... Um, build a bridge to see who could use these materials. We're going to build a bridge and see how much weight, who could win, which team could win, but putting the most weight on this bridge. And you're using things like newspaper um, <laughs> and, you know, pulleys and weird things like that. And we did an egg toss. It's all this weird group team activities. And they're just looking to see like, how good are you at working in a team? Yeah. Are you going to, are you going to engage and, and build on the team? Or are you going to say, you know, pull people down or sit in the corner. And so there's two days of this, literally two full days. And then you're going to a happy hour, going to a dinner, you know, so it was intense. And did you go through the entire interview process once and not get it? Correct. Yep. I did. And, I did, and then I you had the I did <laughs> to say, I, I, they made a mistake. Yeah. Glutton for punishment. This was a they total, a they, they, they gave it to the wrong person. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the hallmarks of entrepreneurial success is this sort of relentless drive and yep. not being deterred by Bingo. a no. So Bingo. Bingo. Um, yep. kudos to you for getting back after it. So, so eventually well, you do get in. And mm -hmm. as you were explaining it 
to me, the first time we talked, mm-hmm. part of the mission of this thing is to actually build a company and build a technology to, to solve a real clinical problem and spend mm-hmm. your year learning by doing, which I think is great because mm-hmm. I took a lot of classes in graduate school about entrepreneurship and, mm-hmm. you know, fun stories to read, but I don't know that any of them helped me actually start a company. Yeah. Yeah. Case studies. Do it. Right. And so tell us a little bit about how that experience led to the founding of of Palmera. Yeah. So, well, they say it's Stanford. The the product are the fellows. Um, So the product is the fellows. And, and in reality, I think everybody there feels the pull to start a company or do something like that to be entrepreneurial. Um, and so you're surrounded by all of these successful entrepreneurs. So you want to go along that path as well. You're like, if they can do it, I can do it. It's almost, you know, you feel kind of an expectation there that you're going to do that. But the way the fellowship is structured is 10 and a half months. It's broken up into three parts. First is identify clinical needs. So they put you in the hospital uh, and you're on teams. There's 12 of us. You're on teams of four. It'll be two physicians and two engineers. And that's your team for 11 months. And you're just working shoulder to shoulder, you know, 10 hours a day for 10 and a half months. And you go into the hospital and you just look for clinical needs in, within a specific specialty. So you write down hundreds and hundreds of clinical needs. You know, what is this? This needle broke during this. Okay. Well, they could, the doctor said he had trouble doing this. Okay. That's a need. Let's write it down. That's the identify phase. And you just break down all of those needs like it's a graduate school course into what's the market size of this need? Is this truly a need that needs to be solved? Or is this just a little bit of a pain point for the physician? Is there enough reimbursement there that if you did come up with a solution that somebody would pay for it? And so you're going through all this graduate level kind of market analysis and in-depth clinical analysis on whether these are true needs. Once you've boiled it down to a few, that you've really liked, you've distilled it and filtered it down. Then you do uh, the invent phase. And that's where you go into those same whiteboard rooms you were interviewed on. And you'll do hour long brainstorming sessions to come up with as many solutions as you possibly can. Lots of caffeine, lots of candy, and you just come up with hundreds of ideas. And then you'll do that many, many times until you come up with, and then you'll distill those solutions down to just the last few that really solve the need. And you feel like have legs to run and you take those solutions and you run them through kind of the implementation phase. That's the third phase where you build a business plan around it. You make an operating plan, financial analysis. You look at healthcare economic value. What's it going to cost to the health healthcare system? What's the value that you bring for unit cost? Are you providing more value than what's out there? And then at the end of that, you decide, hey, do we want to take it forward and form a company? Who's, who's interested? Who's going to go get a job? You know, what do we do? And so with us, uh, I ended up meeting my co-founder, Harmeet Beatty, who's an interventional pulmonologist at Stanford. I shadowed him, saw a clinical need that, that resonated with me and obviously him because he was the one doing the procedure. And that was lung nodule biopsies. So taking a needle, putting it in a suspicious pulmonary nodule. We're concerned about cancer, getting a diagnosis. And so we found the need and the need for us was the way he does the procedure, a pulmonologist, he snakes a tube down your throat and navigates throughout the airways, reaches a pulmonary nodule and sticks a needle in there and tries to get tissue. But the technology they use right now is 
based on old imaging. They basically use a GPS system. It's almost like a video game, virtual reality. And the way they get to these nodules is they use that virtual roadmap to get there. And the software will kind of tell you when you're there. You know, you reach a green ball and, you know, basically like being in an Uber, they say when you've arrived at your destination, you know, you get out of the car and that's, that's when you take a biopsy. The problem is these virtual roadmaps are inaccurate. And the only way to really cure that is to have real-time imaging during the procedure. So where you actually are imaging where the nodule is relative to your device and then adjusting from there until your device is actually inside the nodule. And that's what we're, that's what we're doing. We're basically generating CT images using x-ray machines, using just standard off-the-shelf mobile C-arms. We're generating CT images so that we can help guide these pulmonologists towards these pulmonary nodules and, and improve the diagnostic rate. I guess I should start with the problem. And that is the diagnostic rate is around 70%. So three out of 10 patients are going to walk out of this procedure that he does now, and they're not going to have a diagnosis. You know, do I have cancer? Do I not have cancer? Uh, I don't know. I missed the nodule. The Uber dropped me off at the wrong location. So, you know, we're trying to give them real-time images to get those diagnostic rates up so patients can get the care they need sooner. So you and, and your co-founder decided to start this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long ago was that now? 2018 is when we uh, incorporated and we did okay. that because we, we were applying for an NIH SBIR grant, a phase mm -hmm. one grant. And so we had to incorporate it. It was probably earlier than we would have incorporated just because all the headaches that can come along with doing a C Corp and taxes and all of that. But we did it because we wanted funding and we went after a, an SBIR grant, which we got. Uh, but we've been doing it for about four years. Uh, we had a different solution for the first couple of years, uh, working on something with some grants. And then we've kind of shifted to where we are now these past couple of years. A different solution, like technically, like you, you have. Yeah, this CT imaging. Exactly. Yeah. We pivoted early on. We had a really cool idea that just didn't really have clinical legs. It was so cool. It was such a great research project is what I would call it. It would have been an incredible research project, but that's not what we're there to do. So we pivoted to what we thought would be clinically was for sure going to provide value. And then also there'd be value in return to potential investors and, and to the founders as well. So talk about the economic model for a second. So you're taking these mm -hmm. existing C-arms yep. and then you are jerry-rigging them, improving them somehow through both hardware and software, as I understand it, Correct. so that you can increase the accuracy of the biopsies. So yep. how how much does it cost a mm -hmm. doctor clinic to implement this? And how do they think through the economic benefit? Yeah, it's a really, really important question, especially when you're trying to speak to investors. Um, <laughs> so so right now they're reimbursed under a, under a bundled CPT code. So to do a lung biopsy, they just get one kind of lump payment, whether your Medicare private insurance is about two to three times that, what that number is. And so what we are doing is selling them a system that has an, a computer and uh, a monitor, a display, so they can look at these images. Uh, and then we sell them a few other things that kind of modify the C-arm so that it can do what we need it to do, uh, which is generate CT images. And from an economic standpoint, you know, they're going to pay us a certain amount. It's going to come out of that bundled procedure code. So the beauty is that when you start using CT, your volumes start exploding. You get better at biopsy nodules. You get faster. You get more referrals because you're more accurate. 
your volume numbers increase significantly and it more than offset any cost that, that you would have. If they wanted to buy a CT machine now, because that would be the alternative, you know, you can, but you can buy a CT machine. That's really the, the other option. These machines, the, the lowest price they get around $450,000. And that's, you know, also a service contract of about 40,000 a year. So we're coming in at our system is below $50,000. So we can give pulmonologists CT capability at a extremely low cost, almost one-tenth the upfront cost of these existing CT machines. And then we have a disposable that we use per procedure that also gives us some, some continued revenue on kind of a razor blade model. Thanks for, for stepping me through that. And so then the customer in this case would be the pulmonologists. Yeah, that's right. The physician is the key user. They're kind of the influencer. Mm -hmm. uh, they're the ones who are going to say, I want this. And then you obviously you have to go to your hospital and go to your committees to make sure to say, Hey, I need this. It's going to do X, Y, and Z for my practice, which is going to be really good for downstream revenue. Volumes are going to increase all of that. This is a good investment. Let's do it. It's under 50 K. That should be a no brainer. You know, you you start and, getting, and you, today these patients, instead of going to the pulmonologist might be going to the interventional radiologist. Yeah. Is yeah, that that's exactly that's exactly right. So a pulmonologist, an interventional radiologist, they are the other side of the equation. IRs or even diagnostic radiologists will do lung biopsies. Pulmonologists will also do lung biopsies. There are a lot of benefits to a pulmonologist doing a biopsy. So number one, a pulmonologist can biopsy lymph nodes at the same time they're down the throat. So if you do have cancer, has it spread? That's a procedure that needs to be done anyway. You can do it all at once. Number two, the complication rate of a pulmonologist doing this is much lower, uh, about one-seventh the, the complication rate of doing a radiologist perform procedure. Uh, and that complication is mainly a, a collapsed lung or pneumothorax. And then third, the procedure actually reimburses a lot more when a pulmonologist does it. So economically, it's more attractive for a pulmonologist to be doing this. It's better for the patient. You get fewer complications. But the only thing that was missing uh, in this puzzle is uh, generally the pulmonologist had this not great diagnostic rate, whereas the radiologists were well above 90% in their diagnosis. And it's because they use CT imaging. I mean, this isn't rocket science. They're image-guided proceduralists. They're using CT to do the procedure, and that's why their diagnostic rates are up. What we're doing is trying to give affordable CT to the pulmonologist so it becomes kind of a one-stop shop. Sounds compelling. Mm -hmm. Where are you on your journey? Where are you on the entrepreneurial journey? You mentioned you, you raised some seed funding early on. Mm -hmm. Have you commercialized the product? Like, could a pulmonologist go buy it? Or are you I wish. I wish we testing, were there. Testing, uh, yeah. a so validation. We're, yeah, so we're, where are you? We're early. Uh, so ish, I'd say we have a demo prototype that we can generate CT images on. We've raised maybe 140,000 from friends and family. We're looking to raise a million dollar seed round right now. And we're, we're targeting angel groups for that. Uh, life science angels, groups like that. And so we're on the fundraising trail right now to get us through to developing kind of a more professional, full prototype, a clinical user prototype. Uh, then we'll look to raise a series A to get us through FDA clearance and initial launch. Got it. So the next big milestone after the fundraise is that FDA clearance. Yep. Yep, that's the big milestone that we're we're looking towards uh, is getting the FDA clearance and launching it and really getting it out there into the hands of the physicians. 
And how long does that process typically take? Mm, we're targeting two years from now okay, uh, to get through FDA clearance. So it's really not that long in the term of a device. <laughs> Usually it can take a lot longer, but this is a pretty direct pathway or well-known pathway uh, that we need to go through. And so uh, we don't need any human clinical studies. It can be all kind of bench top and then ready to launch and, and get this out there and, and show physicians what CT guidance can do. Because again, this is something that every radiologist knows about CT guided lung biopsies. And they know, you know, the reason why you use CT guidance is because you can see the tool and the lesion while you're doing the procedure. Sure. It's, it's kind of crazy to think that you would use anything else. <laughs> so I was going to ask you what's been the hardest part this year, mm. but, but it may just be the fundraising because <laughs> I've been there before. And, and uh, but you know, you're a guy who's used to getting told no uh, yep. from, <laughs> from yeah, you got it. Oh, all the time. <laughs> yep. All the time. Yes, that's exactly right. And it, yeah, <laughs> I'd say that's been hard. I think we lost an early engineer who was really, really fantastic. And that was really hard. That was kind of the end of last year, middle of last year, you know, we were making such great progress. And then the engineer was just like, Hey, I've, I've got to move on to, he's basically like, I can't do the startup life <laughs> anymore. So he had to move on and kind of take a more corporate job that would probably pay more than we did. But it, that was really tough. That was really tough. We basically had to regroup, scramble, and find some new engineers, which we did. And I would say it ended up being a kind of a blessing in disguise. We found some even just as incredible engineers who were able to solve some of the problems that we'd been banging our head against. Uh, but now, yeah, it's all about fundraising. It is all about fundraising right now. And that's the journey. I guess we just wear a lot of hats when we're going through this. I'm, I'm used to just wearing one hat. That's a physician. And now I'm bam, let's do an operating plan. Let's, you know, put together the reimbursement model. Let's, you know, get all these CPT codes together. Let's do volume analysis and price sensitivity analysis, <laughs> but it's, it's never a dull day as you well know. Oh yeah. So it's amazing that you've been able to transition your post-residency attending career into this entrepreneurial mm -hmm. effort as I understand it, you still maintain some clinical practice. So mm -hmm. how, how's that structured? How, how does that work today? Yeah, I have a lot of great support from my directors and department heads at, at Vanderbilt. So I'm able to work basically a week on a week off and work evenings. That's kind of the structure we've worked out. It fits a need that Vanderbilt has, which is kind of, they're moving towards some continuous coverage of even in the evenings. Uh, not just for ER patients, but for inpatients as well. And that's kind of the, the gap that I'm plugging. And it also helps me and allows me to, to work on Pulmera during the day. And then, of course, during the weeks that I have off. So, you know, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, I'd been transitioning for, for a while to get to work more and more on Pulmera and to find this balance. And it, it is possible for anybody listening. You know, it, it's not going to happen immediately. These things kind of happen you jump to another level of commitment for a startup and then you kind of stay there for a while. Then you jump to another level. For me, I think going to biodesign was a big one. I took a whole, whole year off from clinical practice. Didn't read one image for a year, which is scary. But I think now I've kind of found a good balance that still allows me to make progress while also, you know, putting food on the table for my family. Yeah, I mean, I imagine most people listening, I think a lot of people in medicine and radiology for sure, which is our audience. Mm -hmm. Think a lot about entrepreneurship. Everyone's got ideas mm -hmm. that they come through 
from yep. their experience, but you're making a big financial bet. You're, you're mm-hmm. working, you know, sounds like half time, which I assume yeah. equates to half money or, or maybe even <laughs> less. So, you know, how, how long can you go at this thing? Have, have you just adjusted your lifestyle such that you're making it work? at halftime. And so that's good for you forever. And, and you can pursue these entrepreneurial pursuits, or is it hopefully one day Palmera takes off and you, you know, bring that clinical practice down even further, or you, at one point you just say, look, like this isn't it. And I need to, to dive back into full practice. How do you think about those decisions, mm-hmm. especially with, you know, building a young family, which uh-huh. most people, you know, are in similar boats? Yeah. That's uh, a great question. I don't think I have the answers. Um, I I think, I think it's just, you have to evaluate yourself and what you want out of life. And for me, I love radiology. I do. Entrepreneurship is just a different animal altogether. And it just kind of gets me going in a completely different way. It uses a a part of my brain. I, I, you don't get to do with just doing radiology. So I think from a practical standpoint, you have to find that equilibrium where you've got a certain lifestyle that you can maintain by having an income that's steady and you know it's not going to hopefully rug be pulled away from you. And it also allows you to do the entrepreneurial activities. You can do both. I think you just have to find it and you have to be patient when you're looking for it. And you have to find people that support you too. You know, like I said, at Vanderbilt, my role is in the Department of Radiology is the Director of Entrepreneurship. Because our department chair, Reed Omery, supports this type of initiative. And so that is, I'm very lucky to have that. I don't think you get that at a lot of places, but they are out there. You know, you just have to find the right people who support this type of endeavor. And, you know, it can happen. Very cool. Well, final question for you. Somehow through all of this, you have also somehow found time to get into podcasting how did you get into (laughs) podcasting and uh maybe i should ask this on air but how am i doing so far (laughs) oh you're you're crushing it definitely so it's uh how did i get into podcasting well that's with the back table podcast so back table is is a podcast for physicians and it started off with interventional radiology aaron fritz is the founder and he's an ir that was in fellowship when I was in diagnostic radiology at, at Vanderbilt and we met and we both had entrepreneurial aspirations and and we started talking about how do we build a community for interventional radiologists so we started working on that and it was a website at first and building kits and devices and just trying to build a community for for radiologists and we talked about doing podcast as a way to do kind of generate leads generate people to come and see what we were doing at the website. Turns out physicians just wanted to watch, listen to the podcast. They just like, <laughs> they just like the content. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I ended up going to, to biodesign around that time as we were getting going and just, you know, kind of dropped off the map for, for back table while I was doing this full immersive biodesign, you know, VC Silicon Valley program. And at, they were growing it like crazy. And by the time I got done, they were like, hey, do you want to do some innovation podcasts? And I said, absolutely, let's, let's rock and roll. And so we started the innovation show. And it was just interviewing physicians who had made an impact on, first of all, the interventional radiology community. So we interviewed Julio Palmas, who invented the Palmas stent. You know, just incredible names with incredible stories 
yeah, so that's that's how I got into it. It was just helping out Backtable on the innovation side because of my background. And I loved the stories. I just loved hearing kind of origin stories of companies. I think that's that's my favorite part. How did you start your company? What, what was the, the birth, the genesis of your company? Uh, and digging into that. And what type of person were you before? What are you now? Those types of things. I just love digging into it. And so that's, yeah, it kind of turned into a, a hobby as well. Well, it's funny. I got to know Aaron a little bit and mm -hmm. have learned a, a ton from Backtable and, and mm -hmm. you and and mm -hmm. he have been inspirational to me that we should do this. You Five years ago, when we were first starting my company, MRI Online, we talked a little bit about, should we do a podcast? Mm -hmm. I was like, that's dumb. Uh, that's what we said. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what we said. I was like, I don't want to go you know, on. I don't want to do that. Well, gonna, you, know, you know, the reason I thought it was dumb is because radiologists look at things. And yeah. I was like, what could they possibly want to listen to? This does not uh, line up. They use their eyes, <laughs> not just... their ears, guys. They do not use their ears ever. Exactly, so. exactly. So I think it was just a bit myopic and, and, and uh -huh. on my point and took me a little bit of time to see the light, but... Um, well, for know, us, we just be... didn't want to, we were just like, nobody's going to want to listen to us. <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. Why would they listen to us? You know, and then you start bringing on guests and then you're like, well, I'd listen to them. So, okay, let's bring this <laughs> guest on. Okay. That works. Uh, and then it just snowballs and you know, by the end, you've got a great community. Well, here, it's, here's, it's engaging. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to get a few listeners to this one, but then five years from now, you're going to sell your company for ungodly <laughs> sums. And, and we're going to get a bunch of page oh, views God. on this podcast. And we're going to, what happened to that? Why, no. why did this podcast blow up? And we'll all know. Don't so, put that pressure on us. Don't do it. See, <laughs> you know it's the kiss of death. All right. <laughs> yep. That's it's yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's see. Challenge accepted. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Dr. Hartley, Brian, thank you so much for joining yeah. us on the show. We had a great, I had a great time. Yeah, that was a blast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.